if you if you're not quite sure what color to check, take a look at the stream bottom, because your bait fish and any of your smaller um, food items are going to take on the color of that stream bed. So I mean I've seen it. I mean I've done river samplings where we've shocked um, sculpins that are you know tan in one stretch of river and go 100 feet down river, and the bottom is like a mossy color and they're like almost jet black. That was Rich Strollis providing a tip on choosing the color of your next fly. Streamers and a couple of good rants today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Uh, I am very excited to share a second podcast that we launched that uh, will be a huge help to you if you're interested in growing your uh, business online. Head over to outdoorsonline.co and listen to the show right now. And uh, if you get a chance, it would love it if you can share this with another person to help uh, get the word out here about the new show. Rich Strollis is on the podcast today to share a different perspective on fly fishing and on life. Find out why he thinks some of the people are dumbing down fly fishing, why he loves A-Rex hooks, and how he retired at 45, but still isn't slowing down. A quick word from our sponsor, GotFishing.com is your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. You'll never pay a dime extra for the trip you book, and in many cases, less than advertised. Find out where GotFishing could take you by heading over to GotFishing.com today. That's gotfishing.com or reach them by phone at 208-630-3373. Gotfishing.com, the easiest place to start your next fishing adventure. So without further ado, here is Rich Strolls from catchingshadows.com. How's it going, Rich? Good. Real good. Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We, uh, you know, we were chatting just uh, for briefly there off air. I think I, uh, I think Kelly Gallup, uh, your name's definitely hopping around there a lot on the streamer side and some other things. Ke- Kelly, we uh, chatted and he, I think he mentioned you originally. So, um, so yeah, we're going to dig into a little bit, probably a little bit on streamers and some other topics, but maybe before we jump into, you know, everything you have going now, you can talk about how you first got into fly fishing and then how that came to be into, you know, writing books and, and everything else you do. Right on. Um, it might be a little bit lengthy. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version yeah. of it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm in Connecticut. Um, I live about five minutes from the Farmington River and about 40 minutes from the Housatonic. But I originally grew up in western Massachusetts, about 30 minutes north of here. And um, I got into fly fishing when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Uh, I started out with conventional tackle, um, fishing small brook trout streams. And a couple of close ponds nearby for like bass and stuff like that. And uh, that, that was my grandmother kind of got me into that because my dad um, was a self-employed carpenter. So he was working quite a bit, um, but he was a big fisherman. He had all kinds of fishing gear in his basement. So I was always kind of infatuated with that. Um, the, what, I think the thing that probably got me steered towards fly fishing was his fiberglass Fenwick fly rod that was hanging up in the rafters down in his shop in the basement. And uh, he would never let me touch it. <laughs> so about the time I was 10, I think, roughly 10 or 11, because um, I'd kind of already caught the fishing bug as it was, I would go all the time. My uh, my really close aunt <clears throat> got me a fly rod for Christmas. It was one of those like package deals. I, I think it was a Cortland, um, to be honest with you. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was a five weight, like a nine foot five weight, came a little high in the whole nine yards. And basically that year I hit the ground running. Um, my dad gave me, a, I guess you could say, a crash course in casting in the backyard. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I had uh, just went with it. And then that year, the next Christmas, because, you know, you know how fly fishing goes. It's a big progression. So I wanted to tie flies. So the next year when I was 10, 10 and a half, 11 years old, my aunt got me a fly tying kit and, uh, the rest is kind of history. So I'm 45 now. So I've been doing this for about 35 years. Oh wow! Um, and it just kind of progressed as it went. Um, I didn't, I kind of broke into the fly fishing industry side of things kind of, uh, by accident. So, um, you know how it is, you kind of, <clears throat> you get to certain points in your life and, you know, college kind of comes around and I was playing sports and doing other things. So fishing kind of got put by the wayside a little bit. And then I kind of jumped right back into it with both feet. And, you know, I was a self-taught kind of fly fisherman and, and tire as well. So I learned from like books. So I'm kind of a little, I'm I've more the old school mentality, I guess. So like, I think I learned how to tie flies off like the Dick Stewart book of tying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I still have an affinity to books. I have quite the collection. Um, a lot of them I still read over and over again, but I did things kind of that way. And then I got proper instruction in fly tying kind of backwards. I did it after the fact. And it was funny because one of the classes I went to there was a very well-known um, commercial tire who owned a shop on the Farmington named Dave Goulet. And uh, he was just a, he had the biggest fingers you'd ever known, but the guy could tie the tiniest flies with super precision and He's kind of an unsung hero in the area. Like he's a lot of stuff that we fish today can be attributed to a lot of designs and techniques that this guy came up with. And he's one of those like lesser known people in the industry. Like if you were to pull a bunch of people, they probably didn't even know who he is. Hmm. And I remember taking a class with him and I think the second fly into the class, he comes over to me and he drops my money on the table and he goes, get out of here. <laughs> and I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you know how to do all this stuff. He's like, you, you don't need a lesson. And I didn't quite know how to take it. Dave was mm-hmm. one of those like really grizzled old guys. So like he either liked you or hated you. And we kind of, <laughs> we, we grew up in the same uh, part of Western Massachusetts and fished a lot of streams. So I, I me and him kind of really hit it off. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, well, I kind of want to learn from you because you're like one of the best I know at it. And I go, I'm not taking my money back. <laughs> so it's kind of funny in that respect. And then a few years later, um, I bumped into, I, I was a, a chairhead for, or I guess you could say like a board member for one of the fishing clubs. Um, there's a club on the river um, called the Farmington River Anglers Association. And, uh, you know, it's like every fishing club. Um, I think it's gotten a little better nowadays, but, it, you know, there's always more older folk involved in it, less younger people. And there's always like a small percentage of the people that are really hyper involved in it. So they saw that I was one of those guys that was fishing all the time and you know, was really interested in everything. And they were like, you know, we'd like to have you on the board. So I ended up getting a board chair spot, not knowing what I'm getting into. And, uh, my first, uh, job there was to basically bring speakers in. Oh yeah. Oh, and you know how clubs are and clubs have gotten a lot better now. They used to be really archaic like Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, I said, well, you know, what about if we, you know, try and bring in some bigger name speakers so that, you know, we'll get more of a draw and then hopefully we'll get more people to want to join the club. So that right around the same time this was all going on, um, there's a guy from a professional photographer who was like 
I guess you could call he likes to call himself like a bug nerd because um, he's kind of like a amateur entomologist uh, named, by the name of Thomas Ames, and he came out with a book on uh, aquatic insects, and it was kind of a groundbreaking book for fly fishermen because he basically molded this book around here's a hatch, here's some flies that you can tie that to fish that hatch, which nobody had really kind of done in that order, and then talk about the insect and whatnot. So I said, well, why don't I try giving this guy a call and see if he'll come down? So. Um, and mind you, in, my, in, in all this, I had a whole other career and I was working like third shift. So I would typically come home from work at night in the morning and I'd either fish all day or I'd catch some sleep and then go fish all day. So this was pre-kids, pre-marriage. I was engaged to my wife the whole nine yards, right? So sorry if I'm getting a little No, go for it. This is great. Good, good story. So so I, I get in touch with Tom and uh, he's like, yeah, I'd love to come down. And I said, hey, if you want, I go because he's coming from New Hampshire, which is I, I want to say it was like maybe a two hour, two and a half hour ride for him to come down. I said, why don't you come down for the day and we'll go fish the, the Farmington for the day. And, you know, then you can give your talk and whatever. So sure enough, he did that. He came down. We, I took him fishing on the river for the day. We totally hit it off. And um, he gave a great talk and then we became friends. And like literally like a week later, and I had been dabbling with the idea of like, guiding and stuff and this was geez almost 20 years ago so he was like uh you know i get an email from him like the following week and he goes you i know you got a busy schedule you burn the candle at both ends because i was young at that time and my motto was kind of like sleep when you're dead yeah so i would, would operate in like hardly any sleep and he's like but he goes um i think i still have the email he's like you know you really know what you're doing on the river. You have a great handle on this insects, different places to fish, where the fish are at. He goes, you know, you'd make an exceptional guide if you'd ever think about it. Hey, here's the name of a, an owner of a fly shop uh, on the Housatonic. I already gave him your name. Um, he'll be expecting a call if you want. Give him a shout. So I call the owner of the shop. Like that was kind of like the push that I needed. Um, call the owner of the shop like that week. Guy hires me on the spot. It was basically like trial by fire. So I was <laughs> – Next thing you know, I'm guided. I did my first guide trip that March on the Housatonic, which is not a very good time of year to take mm-hmm. anybody fishing there because it's a very fickle fishery. Um, and then I just hit the ground running. So I was working that my other job, and then I, I think that first year I did about 70 guide trips, and then that turned into you know about 100 to 125 a year plus working the other job and everything oh, else. Wow. So I had basically was juggling two careers, and it just kind of ballooned by accident. But about the second year I think I'd work there, I ended up going out on my own. Um, it just was a better fit for me. Um, and then it just kind of exploded. And then, um, you know, to the point where, you know, my schedule was like a five on three off schedule. So I was guiding all three of my days off during the season. And then I had, you know, depending on what shift I worked, I would basically come home from work in the morning. Some weeks I'd work like eight, day, eight days in a row or 20 something days in a row. And I, I'd hook the boat up when I got home from work float somebody all day, go home, sleep like four hours, go in and work third shift. And then that was kind of like my life. And then uh, we decided to have a family, my wife and I, and um, it was relatively manageable with one daughter. But then when we had our second daughter, it was just, it became too much. And uh, thankfully uh, I have a halfway decent head on my shoulders and I realized that my family is the most important thing. So I decided to kind of step away from guiding. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, Right around 2011-ish, somewhere around there. Um, but I didn't want to kind of, you know, dispel the business that I had because I'm like, this is really something I want to do when I leave that other job, which I'm actually doing so next month. I'm retiring from that. So 
I was like, uh, you know, how am I going to keep this going? And at that time, I had made a lot of really good connections. I kind of broke into the fly fishing industry per se. I had got invited to some tying shows and stuff because some people had heard about some of my flies, and that's where I became friends with a lot of different guys in the um, around my age group in the um, fly fishing industry and older people. So one of them, which uh, a really good friend of mine, uh, he's like a brother from another mother, is uh, Mike Schmidt. Oh yeah, and talking to Mike Schmidt. Um, and I said, dude, I'm like, I'm really kind of at a crossroads right here. I don't know what to do. I really don't want to you know, dispel my business. Um, I want to say this was cause I dabbled in the tying a little bit for people right around like 2009 ish, 2008. Um, and I told him, I said, you know, I have gotten kind of prodded by a bunch of different people, customers and stuff. Tom Ames himself, cause he actually put a few of my flies in a couple of his books cause he was impressed with them. So I was like, you know, I was thinking about getting into doing some commercial tying. I got the knack for it. I, I can tie for speed. I, it doesn't bother me. I kind of enjoy it. I, I, I always like, you know, tactile things with my hands. I, I When I was in middle school, I worked at a blueberry farm. And I hit one of my the jobs I had that I kind of cornered myself into was building boxes for the blueberries. So I was kind of an opportunist. And I saw that, hey, all right, well, these boxes are 11 cents in a piece. If I do a hundred of these an hour, I'm making like $11 an hour for a kid. That's like 13, 14 years old. That's pretty good. You know, at the time. So the fly time thing kind of seemed like a natural progression. Mike said, yeah, man, go for it. And here I am thinking, Oh, I'm just going to tie a few bugs for people, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, a few dozen or whatever a year. Um, <laughs> the first year I, I wrote it down. Um, cause I, Charlie Craven has done the same thing. I think he's closing in on a million something flies, that yeah. guy. Um, but I think the, fr- the first year I tied 22,000 flies for people. Damn. Which completely blew my mind. So, and that was, and at that time I had changed shifts at work. So I went from working third shift to second shift. So basically I was home in the morning um, with my kids and uh, before I went to work while my wife was working. And then if I had time while they were taking naps or whatever, I'd be spinning some bugs there. Or when I came home from work at night at midnight, I tied at like three in the morning. And then, you know, on my days off, I would put in some days like 18 hours. So that kind of filled the void. And then, you know, that just snowballed. I uh, um, I mean, I've had a lot of awesome things come my way. But I worked hard for it, obviously. It wasn't just kind of given to me. Um, but, you know, I got um, several flies with uh, Montana Fly Company now. I was asked to write a book. Did that a few years ago. I'm supposed to be writing a couple more, which I've been kind of slacking on because it's a huge uh, – writing a book is a lot of work, um, and it cuts into your fishing time too. So yep. um, so that's kind of where I'm at now. Huh. And now my life and my other side has kind of come full circle. In the last year, I've actually been able to get back out on the water and guide people. Um, I'm spoiled because I live next to some great water, so I always get an opportunity to get out and fish. Um it, but it's kind of taken a whole new meaning for me at this stage of my life. But that's kind of where I'm at now. And now it's, it's kind of stinks that we're in this position we're in now with this um, yeah. situation because now I'm getting ready to kick my guide season off. And, you know, it's I'm it's basically all question marks. So question thankfully marks. still tying some flies for people every day. I've got orders and stuff coming that's in. Right. But, you know, I'd much rather, much rather be out there on the water with, I'm sure, thousands and thousands of other guides out there. I feel their pain. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird situation we're in. So that's where I'm at right now. That's cool. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good intro. I got all sorts of questions that come up from, you know, talking about that. I mean, one thing I guess just up front is you're a a police officer, right? For your day job. 
Yeah, I've uh, I've been a you know I, I never really kind of divulged that to people until like the last year or two. But yeah, it was a, I've been a member of the Connecticut State Police for yeah this is my twentieth year. In cool. fact, the seventh April is my retirement date. So 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 you're retiring uh, this, this year. Yeah, I'm retiring like in a couple weeks. <laughs> wow. See, that's the amazing thing about uh, I've got a friend that's in the fire department and. I mean, obviously, it makes sense. You guys are in a, a dangerous line of work, and I mean, being able to retire at forty-five, it, it just seems like um, seems like an amazing thing, man. You got and you planned it well. And I've had a couple of police officers on. Uh, Dean Finnerty uh, was yep. the first one, and he he told a crazy story about you know dressing up in disguise or something like that. But um, I mean, yep. how does it feel now? I mean, you're 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 retiring. Do you plan to go even further all in on fly tying and fly fishing? Yeah. So my, you know, I kind of had this plan once I kind of got into the industry side of things like 18 years ago, I was like, you know, this would be a great, I I realized early on, I mean, police work is a thankless job. It's a very rewarding line of work. It's, um, you know, it can be prestigious. It's not, not really looked at that way as much nowadays. I think, uh, you know, it's times have changed and I've kind of seen that over my career, not to get on a soapbox with it, but, um, you know, I, I kind of realized early on that this is going to be a long career if I'm in my uniform every single day. And, you know, you and it, I don't really it doesn't really matter what kind of line of work you do. I think it's all about having a good, happy life balance. Mm-hmm. So and for me, like I'm ultra people who know me, I'm, I'm super passionate about fly fishing. I, mean, I have friends that are like one of my really good friends, Mike, that I used to fish with a lot before we started families. He's a huge bow hunter. And this guy's been trying to get me into bow hunting for 15 years now. And, and I told him, I said, Mike, I go, I love you, buddy. But if I get into bow hunting, I, I would probably end up divorced because I just don't do things. I kind of take them to that yeah. nth degree, you know? So, um, but what was nice is I realized that, you know, I'm very, very lucky that I have a passion that I can turn into a career. It's almost like being a professional athlete. And I know a lot of guides feel the same way that when they choose this career path, like th- when you get involved in something like this, it's almost like you're not working. So I, I looked at, I planned things well, you know, my wife is super, super supportive. Um, so I, I realized that this was going to be my end game. And, you know, I, I, I hate to use the retirement word because it sounds like almost like it sounds kind of obnoxious for me to say at 45 years old that I'm retiring. I just like to say that I'm going into a career change really, because that's kind of yeah. what I'm doing. So, um, you know, the beauty of it is the last few years and, and it's multifaceted. So the nice thing is I have the fly tying thing there. You know, and, and teaching people how to tie flies, and then I've got the guide facet of it, and you know, teaching people facets of fly fishing, and re, you know, reliving all those different cool things that you've experienced, like your first fish, your biggest fish, all that stuff, with clients. And then, you know, I got into to hosting some trips too, which you know is a whole other ball of wax. I don't know how much of that I'm really going to continue to do because it's it's fun and you get to go to some cool places, but it's also it's time consuming and it can be a lot of it can be labor intensive depending on the, the group of people you bring. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of where it's at. Um, I, I've been very fortunate. Um, it's going to, it's kind of weird. Like I never would have thought, um, if you told me that this was going to be my life path when I was in high school, I mean, like the law enforcement career was never something that I aspired to do. Like, it's not like I know I have friends that were, um, you know, lifelong, that's what they, they had their mindset on it when they were kids. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. That wasn't me. Why did you choose, or if you had to choose say between, you know, I mean, you've kind of done both, but between being a police, a police officer or 
a full-time fly fishing tying industry person, which one would you choose if you had to go back 20 years? You know, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change anything that I've done. Um, but I definitely think I probably would have stuck with the fishing side of things. I probably wouldn't live as comfortably as I have, but, um, you know, there's, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's in, and it's really, you know, looking back on my career, I've had a really good career and I got to do some really awesome things. Uh, I spent five years in our training division for our agency, which is where it's kind of funny. Um, you know, some people are like, Oh, why didn't you try to get promoted and move up the ranks? And that's really not what I want. Why I joined the, that particular, you know, li- line of work. I said, I felt like I had a bigger impact on the people that were coming through as, you know, um, you know, cadets, um, than I would if I was some sort of a supervisor, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, and not everybody in our, in that goes into that line of work has the opportunity to do that. So yeah, I feel pretty blessed that I had that opportunity and, you know, it was, it was good. I, I think it, to be quite honest with you, I, I think, um, I don't think I would have done it any different because I had having all those different things going for a guy like me, if one thing kind of got to be too much, I could refocus my time and my efforts to one of those other facets. So like if I'm getting a little burned out on one thing here, I can kind of go over here and do that. And it kept everything fresh so yeah. that it wasn't cause it's really, I mean, I don't care what anybody does for work. You're going to go through highs and lows and you know, with police work, the highs and lows are way more drastic. Um, fishing too. I can see you have to have a great deal of patience to be a guide, you know, and I've, I've bumped elbows and been on the water with a lot of people in, in the guide industry. And some, some of them, it's kind of just a grind and they go through it and they're still fantastic guides, but you can see how it wears on them. So I think it's like anything, you know, if too much of a good thing can be a bad thing too. So I think it just kind of worked out for me, you know? So why did you, you know, where you're at now, why not just, <clears throat> you know, retire, pack it up and just kind of uh, live your days fishing when you want to, you know, why do you stick with, because you must be giving up some things to, to continue, right? I mean, where you, people do as police officers retire, then they kind of just go off into the distance. Is there a reason why you stick? Like, sounds like you're going to keep guiding and tying flies. Is there a reason why you keep doing it? Yeah, because of my personality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a guy that can just kind of sit around and do nothing. Like yeah. I, I get up early in the morning and my day, this is how my day starts. I'm typically up, even if I have nothing to do, I'm up at like four or four thirty. And I'm either, I'm a raging type A. So like I, I have to be doing stuff. Like if I don't feel like I'm doing anything, I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. So, and it's like one of those things, if you don't get after it, you're never going to really get into something or you're never going to be really good at it. So if you don't kind of seize the day with things, my thing is, well, you're kind of wasting my time. So I get up early, um, you know, I might be tying some, an order of flies for somebody. I could be out in my garage uh, working out. You know, that's a big part of my life. I try to train and keep in shape because I want to live long and, mm-hmm. you know, see my grandkids someday. I guess you could say my business plan overall for myself is really good because I kind of control it. So, but I also know too that I can be my own worst enemy because when the fishing's really good and the season kicks in, I'm not going to want to say no of people that, because over the years I've built, I'm sure a lot, a lot of guides, all the good guides will say the same thing. Over the years, you build a tremendous bond with your customers mm-hmm. and you'll have a huge um client list i guess you could say it or you know group of group of people that they're the ones that really keep you busy because they just enjoy spending the time with you on the water and 
you, know, you get to kind of see them progress. So, you know, I can kind of pick and choose who I want to go with. Um, but I also don't want to turn people away. So, you know, I really, I'm kind of in that unknown realm right now. I don't really know how crazy my schedule is going to get, but if it gets, 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 get kind of crazy, I'm okay with it. Cause I like being busy. That's just me. Cause if I'm not, you know, like I said, if I'm not guided, I'm not tying, I'm not taking my kids fishing, spending time with my, my wife and kids. I'm going to be out digging in my garden. I like the garden, mm-hmm. you know, um, doing those kinds of things. So, yep. you know, I'm, I'm a busy you buy. You're not a, it doesn't <laughs> sound like you're a person that sits behind the TV and, and watches the tube too much. No, you know, it's funny. I I've watched in the last five, five or six months, I probably watched more TV than I've watched in, in decades because I actually had to have a, um, I had a minor knee surgery procedure done, um, on my right knee. So, you know, I was home, I was tying during most of this, but you know, I was kind of still going to PT a couple days a week and whatnot. But, you know, I, I've been utilizing my time at the, my bench. Now I have a TV set up in there. So it kind of, it's just like white noise, but yeah, I'm, I'm behind. I know a lot of, it's funny cause guys look at my friends, look at me like I'm some kind of idiot. Cause I'm like, Oh, I haven't watched that series yet. And I'm, I'm just watching sons of anarchy now. Yeah. <laughs> All my friends are picking on me. So there you go. There you go. Cool. Well, let's jump into a couple, uh, you know, you mentioned the, um, catching shadows. I mean, that's the name of your website. Can you talk about, um, that book and maybe describe it to somebody who maybe hasn't seen it or read it? Sure. Um, so like I told you before, I'm, I'm big on, um, like fly fishing literature and all different facets. So, um, when I got tasked to write that book that I was talked to by, um, Jay Nichols, who's like one of the lead editors, um, Mm -hmm. for Headwaters and Stackpole. And, um, we had talked about, he talked to me about doing a book on a bunch of my fly patterns. So, um, my biggest thing with, and there's some great, great books out there. There's a lot of them that fall short too. So I'm kind of like a, I kind of geek out on books and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty high critic of a lot of them. So, um, my biggest thing was when I did this book, I didn't want it to just be a tying encyclopedia on, Hey, these are some fly patterns that Rich Strollis came up with. This is how you time and that's it. So, the book details, it's broken into like three distinct sections of flies. And, and I know everybody, you know, looks at me for streamers, but, um, there's streamers, nymphs and dry flies in there. And, um, I want to say there's like 22 or 24 different patterns, um, that I have in there that are all unique to myself. And, and what I do in each chapter is I break down the fly and it kind of has like some sort of a story that goes with them. Cause there's always a story with every kind of pattern, whether it was, some sort of riddle I was trying to figure out on my own um, local waters or I went on a trip and tried something just a little different. And then, you know, there's those kinds of stories that are in there. Then it goes into the whole kind of, you know, um, design and evolution process of that fly and then the tying sequences. But it also tells you, uh, you know, here's how I fish it, which I think is a lot of times gets left out in a lot of books. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's some really good fly tying books out there. I mean, now most people go to like YouTube to look at fly tying yeah. stuff, which is crazy. Um, but, um, you know, so I wanted to kind of incorporate that in there. Um, and it's, so you get, you get a l- little bit more than, than your normal tying book. Gotcha. Kind of ask about, you mentioned the Farmington river. Is that, is that your home river? And, and if you had to pick say a couple of flies out of that book, which ones would they be to fish your, your home water if you're going there tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I would I would use the word home loosely. I probably fish there less now than I ever have. I used to fish there on a daily basis, um, and the reason being is I just 
I hate to sound negative, but it's the fishing pressure on that watershed is just through the roof now. Um, just cause it's really, it's close in proximity to like three different, um, metropolitan areas and it gets a lot of, lot, a lot of pressure. So I, um, I actually spend a lot more time over on the Housatonic because I feel like I can get more of a Western feel there. And some days the fishing might not be as good, but I can kind of get away from people, which is what I, a lot of us are drawn to that, to the sport anyway. But, um, I would say that the flies that I would pick would be, you know, used, um, on both fisheries. So, um, I guess, uh, I would break it down into, again, I get this question all the time about streamers. And I think, you know, my streamer selections evolve every year. But if I had one of my streamer patterns, if we're talking one of the patterns out of that book that I would use all the time would probably be the the headbanger sculpin just because it's super versatile. It's just a big fish catcher. That thing puts fish in the net all the time. You don't need a sinking line to fish it. So, you know, it's a versatile streamer pattern. Um, Probably the dry fly of choice would be like the uh, shucked up emerger that I would use. Close second would probably be the rabbit's foot caddis that's in there. Um, those two flies are, I mean, I throw those all the time, like every season for caddis and mayfly hatches, and they're super interchangeable. So all you have to do is just change the size and the color. You can cover all your bases. Mm-hmm. And then um, when it comes to nymphs, that's kind of hard because, I mean, it. I don't know. It, there's a bunch of different I, I guess I would probably probably would pick it'd be a toss-up between three which doesn't really give you a good answer <laughs> but um like that little DDT nymph that I tie I guess if you had to put a gun to my head that would be the one I'd probably mm-hmm. pick or or the cool body jig um but they all have their moments I mean a lot of the, the nymph and dry fly patterns are very more bug centric so they're based around specific events and hatches so yeah you know um but those those two that i relayed there i mean you can use them as searching patterns and they'll they'll catch fish predominantly good part of the time so yeah and so on the um i guess if we do look at say the farmington it sounds like you fish Mm -hmm. that that quite a bit and and you take that headbanger um out there can you describe how you would uh and which how you will describe how you get into fish and talk about which species you're focusing on there Yep. So the, you know, the, the Farmington river is a pretty dynamic, uh, watershed. So it's about 82 miles long. It starts up the headwaters are up in Massachusetts and then it flows South into Connecticut. Um, it goes through a couple of reservoirs. So it's a, it's a true tailwater. Um, the, there are two reservoirs that it flows through are pale in comparison to some of the Western tailwaters. So, um, when I say that they're much smaller, so we will get, depending on how much um, rainfall we have and how full those two reservoirs are, we will get a, a water turnover, like usually like late summer. So it won't be blowing cold water anymore. It'll be, it'll be flowing like, you know, 70 degree water, which isn't super bad, but it definitely affects the fish. Yep. Um, and it continues south to the town of Farmington, and then it actually comes uh, west or east rather, and then goes north or north rather, and then goes back uh, east out and dumps into the Connecticut River. And there's a couple, there's another dam down there as well. It's not a true tailwater, it's a smaller impoundment. But from it, the those that dam upriver, it's a predominantly a trout fishery, you know, um, mostly brown. Um, there's some wild brook trout in there, stocked brown trout and wild brown trout, rainbow trout as well. 
Um, they've got a unique uh, situation there where they do a survivor program where the uh, state DEP comes in in the fall and they do a sampling of the river and they bring some of the wild stock back to the hatchery and they hatch those fish or they, they actually spawn them at the hatchery and the eggs that go in back into the river have come from those wild fish. That's why they have such mm-hmm. a great um, holdover and wild po- you know, growing wild population of brown trout. Now, as you go below that uh, rainbow dam, that, that goes out into the Connecticut River and you can get a plethora of different fish in there. Um, smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, pike, mm. um, uh, shad run up into there, uh, some Atlantic salmon, very, very few, um, and striped bass. So I've, mm. you know, the cool thing about that lower section is you can catch all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but I, I'm primarily focused on the trout water and it's yeah. usually, there's about a 20 mile stretch from the Hogsback Dam down through into the town of Farmington. Um, and that's kind of what, that's the water that gets hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tremendous amount of hours of fishermen and for the right reasons. I mean, it's good trout water. It's probably the best in new England, hmm. you know, arguably. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, you, so you wanted me to answer that question on the headbanger. Yeah. Correct? Was that, and that's for Brown. If you were to fish that section for a, it's mostly focused on Browns, you'd be using the, that, the headbanger. Yep. I would use that. And, um, you know, in up to a relative, and I would say like, you know, moderate size, my moderate size streamer would be what some traditional trout fishermen would consider large. So like, um, three and a half to five inches long, um, and articulated and it's a weighted sculpting pattern and it has one of those like helmets on the front of it. So you can fish that on a floating line. Um, and I typically, you know, it's going to get down and, and it dives and jigs and jives and does all that cool stuff. So I typically like to fish that uh, with primarily an upstream presentation, you know, up into riffles, slow pockets, inside seams of bends, things of that nature. And, you know, you work, you manipulate that fly. One of the most productive ways to manipulate it is a, a you know, a strip pause, strip pause type technique. So that basically that fly kind of jigs in the water column and comes up off the bottom, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yep. so that's kind of like one of the, one of the ways there's many different ways that you could fish it, but that's probably one of the more productive ones. Yeah. Gotcha. And yeah, we've talked about that. I mentioned Kelly Gallup talked about some of that. We've had a couple of streamer um, episodes on here. So yeah, can you talk, you know, if we stick on the streamer game for a little bit here, um, you know, the headbangers one, but just talk about just generally speaking, your, you know, what fly design, what, what you think about when you're designing your, your streamers? Uh, a lot of different things, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a couple different ways you could kind of break streamer design down, I think. Um you could break it into, all right, I'm really trying to imitate a specific food form. And then there's the whole side of, I'm trying to imitate some sort of an action built into the fly. That's going to elicit a predatory strike out of that fish. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm more of the guy, I don't tie a lot of bait fish specific style flies, although I do fish them from time to time, but I'm more of the lean towards that. I'm looking to, achieve some sort of an action out of the pattern that I'm building. Um, and it might loosely, uh, represent some kind of food form. I mean, majority of the, of the streamers represent a bait fish yeah. to a degree. Um, some sort of bait fish, whether it's a sculpin, a darter, a dace, you know, a small trout, um, sucker, smaller fish, things of that nature, or, you know, crustaceans like crayfish, um, Heck, even frogs, mm-hmm. you know, mice, things like that. So I, you know, when I sit down to kind of design something, I, I, 
I look at it and, and I know Kelly said this and I kind of the same school of thought as him. I'm, you know, I, I delve into a lot of, uh, you know, the lures, a lot of the mm-hmm. lures that we fish. Cause I, I started as a lure fisherman as a kid, you know, and, and we all talk about the jointer rapala and the jitterbugs and the re- other types of rapalas and divers and shad wraps and all this kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, you're looking for those different types of actions that you can incorporate and translate that into a fly design, you know? So, a lot of times how it comes down to is, you know, if you look at a majority of the well-designed articulated streamer flies and even the non-articulated ones, there's some common themes in a lot of this newer, newer, and I say, you know, last 30 years types yep. design. You've got a fly that's um, got more mass towards the head that's going to help make that fly kind of swim naturally like a fish would, you know, so you have more bulk and mass up near the head to a degree. And softer, more you know, looser materials towards the rear. So mm-hmm. I usually go from there with that. Um, and then where it's going to be fished in the water column, you know, that's a whole other tier of um, things to consider. Mm-hmm. So like if I want something that's going to be fished close proximity to the bottom, then you know, obviously I'm probably going to want something that's fished tight or tied on like some sort of a jig style hook, something that's going to invert. It's going to have to obviously have weight in it, um, so I can get it to the bottom faster. Or, you know, if I'm going to be tying something that's going to be neutrally buoyant and I'm going to be using, you know, an integrated sinking line to kind of help it break through the meniscus, then that fly is going to be designed a little bit different. So those are the kind of the things that I look at first and then, yep. and then I go from there. Gotcha. Um, and we had a couple questions here. I was just going to run by before, so I don't forget about these from the Facebook group. Sure. Um, uh, Ken, uh, Lindy's, uh, was asking about, uh, I think he's kind of just getting started more in fly tying, but he was asking about, you know, how to make a fly present, uh, presentable. So, uh, do you have any tips on, you know, if somebody was tying some of these streamers to make a better, mm-hmm. f- to make a better fly or, you know, somebody struggling to actually make a, a good looking fly, anything come to mind there? Yeah. I mean, the key, the key, especially, and, and this goes to whether you're a commercial tire or you're, you know, the casual tire who likes to fish a lot and you're just tying to fill your own boxes the key comes down to just practice. So w- one of the best um, adv- pieces of advice that I got early on was if you really want to learn a pattern, try and tie six or 12 of them. And the key is when you can make all six or 12 of them look the same, then you know you've got that pattern nailed. Yeah. So you practice it. It all comes down with practice and time at the vice. So, you know, we could spend hours talking about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, I think the best advice I could give him is, you know, you, and, and the cool part about this is this is how I learned how I've got an ever-growing library of fly patterns in my head. And this is all based just on this simple fact of take a pattern that you know you're going to fish or that you'd like to fish or you have confidence in and tie it in succession. Whether, like I said, it's six or 12, you want them all to look the same. So that's where you get your consistency there. Mm-hmm. Speed will come with time. So it, you know the some of the best advice I can give you is you – and you can you don't have to be a commercial tire to use these techniques, but it'll help you if you're just the casual tires. Try to eliminate all those extra things that you're doing while you're tying. So you'll see a lot of really good tires and all commercial tires for the most part don't put their scissors down. Mm-hmm. Their scissors are attached to their hand. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, it, prep your materials. And I had a guy. It was funny. I, and and in no disrespect to him, we had a great conversation, a good debate, which is. Kind of hard to come by nowadays because everybody's so one-sided yeah, with stuff. Yep. He was actually really good, and he was kind of arguing with me about why I staged 
stage all my materials. And I don't think he quite understood why he was trying to explain to me that, well, if you just tie it all in succession because of his line of work with manufacturing processing, that oh, it's, right. it's proven to be faster. And I said, <laughs> well, I would, argue, I would argue that till the cows came home. Yeah. So anyway, what I mean by staging, it's not just state, like, I'm not telling you to take a, take a dry fly, like a caddis or, uh, and just tie the tail and throw it aside and then tie all your tails and then go back in the bodies. But you know, there, I stage tie certain flies that are multi-part, like a, a articulated streamer. It makes sense to do that. But what you want to do is hand pick all your materials first, and then you want to set them up in the order that they're tied. And for certain things, you can lay that stuff out ahead of time. Like uh, we use marabou, for example, for tails on streamers. I'll hand pick all my marabou ahead of time because you open up a bag of marabou, whether it's a pound or it's an ounce. Not every feather in there is going to have exactly what you're looking for for the tail of that fly. So if you do all that legwork ahead of time, it makes the tying process go by a lot easier. And then you're going to have you're going to find that your tying is going to be a heck of a lot cleaner. Yep. So stage tying, that kind of stuff. And the cool thing is, back to what I initially said was, when you take that one pattern and you've tied it in succession six or twelve times, you've committed it to your memory. So you'll, you'll see, and, and it's hard for some people to kind of grasp that, but you'll see a lot of the really good tires, they can just, okay, I know this fly. I've tied this before. They can go back. They don't have to look at a book. They don't need to pull it up somewhere. All right, these are the materials that I know that I need for this, I can, and it's in my memory bank, and I go back and I grab all that stuff. Yeah. So it's it kind of works twofold. And and the uh, again, staying on that headbanger uh, pattern, can you describe, and I'll put a link in the show notes to a video for it, but yep. c- can you describe how, just uh, briefly, how you tie that fly? Sure. Um, it's it's basically another very, part of this fly is like a woolly bugger on steroids with some additions. So if you were to look at the body on it, it's got a marabou tail, that envelope, and it's it's a palmered marabou. It's usually multicolored. So that gives you a two-tone effect in the tail. Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit more time to tie it that way, but it gives you a, a much more pleasing-looking fly, and I think it models the pattern a lot better, a lot, lot better like a natural sculpin because sculpins have a you know, modeled color to them. Um, you, that's more for us than the fish, but I, if it looks good and you feel comfortable yeah. with it, that's that's kind of what I want to do. Um, has a piece of holographic flash or a couple strands in between that. So you basically start with the flash. You uh, palmer the, you know, just like you're doing a popsicle for swinging, mm-hmm. you know, yep. marabou, marabou style tail on there like that. And then there's a, um, like a cactus chenille underbody, a uh, slapping feather is palmered through that. So you've got some soft material. It's just a filler. I like mm-hmm. to call that like body filler. And then you got a couple of rubber legs in there, like barred crazy legs. And that's just, those are, you know, I, I like to consider those are just fluff. They're extra. They make the fly look good, but do you really need them? Probably not. Yep. You know, especially when it comes to like, you know, commercial flies, you got to have bin appeal. Yeah. When I say bin appeal, it catches the fisherman, not the fish, Right. <laughs> you know? And then the wing on it is reverse tied um, Arctic foxtail. So it gives, I use that because it, it gives this fly like a really good three-dimensional profile and it's tied on the the top half of the hook or which would actually be the bottom because this fly rides inverted it's weighted and it's the same process for the front and then when you get up towards the head there's uh you know the gills on this or not the gills but the pectoral fins are made out of like laser dub oh yeah and then you have a helmet on there so you're basically repeating that 
those all those steps from the back on the front oh. and it's articulated. So that's it. So basically uh, it's the same fly just tied twice. You got one, the art, the back and the front, the same fly just put together with articulation. Yep. Yeah. And you know, the variations of this are that I've tied cause I've been tying this fly for geez, 12 years now. And, and you know, Roman Moser was the one who came up with these weighted heads years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's known for the bead head, all that good stuff. Hmm. And then, you know, uh, Martin at Flyman fishing came up with a kind of, I, I don't want to say it's, it's not a knockoff, but it's an, it's a, Another style of scope and helmet. It's not quite as heavy. It's not made out of tungsten. That has been popularized and used here, and that's what's kind of on the front of this, and it keels it. But when I tie these, you know, I've tied these for such a wide variety of species of fish. I've even got guys that are, you know, using um, – they're tied on a shank with a trailer hook and swinging these in Alaska for steelhead and salmon. And for uh, rainbow trout, same thing. Uh, I've had some sent them out. Uh, to the Pacific Northwest for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had guys catching time in on these things. <laughs> um, you know, we, this is a killer. I mean, it's, I tied it for brown trout, but this is a killer smallmouth fly. Yeah. I can't tell you how many smallmouth I catch on these every year. Cause the, the beauty of the Housatonic over here is it's a blue ribbon smallmouth fishery. So when the trout fishing is not good, that's usually when the, the smallmouth can always keep a bend in your rod. So, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. And I'll, I'll put a link, uh, to again, some, some of the, uh, the, the, the head and st- stuff you talk about. What about hooks? What do you like to use for hooks on, on that fly? I like, uh, I guess you could say, um, so I guess everybody, in, everybody who's been involved in our sport, any facet has got like certain things, guys like to call them fetishes or things that they're mm-hmm. hung up on hooks, hooks, hooks is one of those things where I've got like, I got a serious problem with hooks. Like, bad but i you know also i have to have a lot of hooks on hand because i tie so many flies so um i like to i'm a realist with and i and i think my ideas kind of go hand in hand with my tying mentality is um i'm not i don't follow the mentality of this fly pattern has to absolutely be tied with this fox fur that was from that yeah. was urinated on from, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If I can find something that's relatively close to that, that behaves the same way or, or has the same kind of structure to it, that's going to achieve the same end result by all means, I'm going to substitute it. So the same thing with hooks. So I don't like to prescribe to one hook company. I kind of found mm-hmm. Multiples that I like, but there are probably four companies that I use the most. When it when it comes to streamer hooks, Gamakatsu is at the top of the pile all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love their their hooks for streamer hooks. I you know they're they're the most readily available for the commercial tire. Um, I like some of the partridge designs as well. Um, the the one knock with partridge, and I love their hooks is they're not always readily available. So I have to have some sort of, um, you know, alternative. Um, and then probably the other one that I tie with the most when it comes to the streamers and I'm tying with more now are the Airx hooks. I've very yeah. been very, very impressed. Um, Morton's doing awesome stuff over there and he's been, his hooks have been pretty, pretty darn available. So, um, their saltwater stuff I wasn't too impressed with in the beginning, but he's got some new blue water style stuff. That's fantastic. So, um, I'm kind of having an affinity towards his stuff. Um, when it comes to bugs and, you know, wet flies, nymphs, dry flies, things of that nature, I run the gamut. I really do. 
Um, yeah. I have a lot of flies that I tie for guys that like to tightline them. So, you know, they want the super long beaks and barbless hooks. You know, a lot of those hooks are like that nickel finish. So like I'll, I'll have, geez, I tie with same thing, partridge, Honox. I've mm-hmm. just gotten into dealing with a lot of the fire hole stuff. Uh, I really like some of his hooks. Um, let's see. I use a lot of Daiichi stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, Daiichi, Tiamco, TMCs. Yep. Um, and some of the new Eric stuff. I mean, the Eric's, um, one of my favorite new hooks from them. I'm not, not to make this sound like it's an Eric's commercial here because yeah. I'm not getting paid by them. Yeah. <laughs> but I really, really like their, um, their barbless, um, nymph hook. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. It's stout. Um, that's the thing you run into with some of the smaller hooks is sometimes you get a good fish on a 14 and smaller and they bend out on you. These things aren't bending out. So I've been very, very impressed with it. So I guess you could say I, I kind of, I will go, I have my personal preferences for styles of hooks that I like by certain companies, but if I can't get those or I'm out, I have to have backup options. So I like to keep it wide open. Yeah. That makes sense. Good. Uh, no, those are that's great. I think yeah, there obviously there's a ton of uh, killer uh, uh, companies out there. Um, well, we're going to start to kind of wrap this thing up, and I was kind of hinted on this a little bit, but the the two twenty two is uh, you know top two tips, top two flies, top two resources. We've already been talking about flies. Um, you know, tips wise, do you have a couple of either uh, maybe some tips for uh, fishing streamers or for tying uh, streamers? Anything we haven't talked about here? Yeah, I think with fishing streamers is I, I the one question, and I'm sure Kelly said this to you when you interviewed him. I, it, he'll tell you the same thing. Everybody always asks, "What's the best retrieve to fish a streamer?" Yeah. And there really isn't one, to be honest with you. What you have to do is you have to look at every time you go fishing as, with streamers as a clean slate. All right, and you know you, you have obviously a memory bank of techniques and you know, retrieves and pauses and strips and manipulations with the rod that worked for you in the past. And that's a good baseline to start with, but you have to think, you know what, if you get caught and then we all do this, no matter how you fish, you get caught doing the same thing over and over again. It's productive for a certain amount of time and then it shuts off and we still do the same thing and the results have gone by the wayside and we don't change. So I think the biggest thing is when it comes to fishing streamers is, is, you know, kind of be progressive, move, move around, try some different things Vary your technique until you find what the fish is responding to. Okay. I know Kelly's yeah. big on changing colors yep. and he's got a, he's got a lot of time put into that and I see how it works. I also think too, it, you can make yourself crazy with that from time to time too. If you've got a, a hot, it's not so much the color. I think a lot of times it's finding where the fish are in the water column and what kind of retrieve or style of fly is going to get them to induce a strike, mm-hmm. you know? So I think, that's another thing to take into uh, consideration. And I'm not knocking his color thing. I'm just thinking, think about that a little bit. I'd be more apt to change the style of fly and where I'm fishing it as opposed to the color. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So you're so you're not necessarily changing out uh, like him. I think he says every five, you know, every few minutes he's changing out his fly. You're, you're not really doing that. No, he changes flies a lot. I don't know if he does it every five minutes. He's probably going to want to punch me in the neck for saying that. But <laughs> he changes his colors a lot. I got the opportunity to fish with him on the white this year. So I, you know, it was really cool sharing a boat with him and yeah. hope to do that again soon. But he does change a lot and you know, he's got a lot of really, and it's funny because the cool thing about getting in a boat with a guy like him is you, know, he thinks a lot about stuff and doesn't just go through the motions, which I, I really, I like that, you know, cause I think that's how you get better. If you just go out there and do the same thing over and over again, you don't literally learn much, you know? So yeah. you have to kind of sit there and question what you're doing. 
Um, the, the one other thing I will say about streamer fishing, and this is why I think I gravitate toward it so much, because all of us kind of got into fly fishing, I think, for the most part, because it's a challenge. It's not the easiest way to catch fish. No. So um, I know, and I'm going to catch some heat for saying this, and I'm not trying to be negative, but I feel like there's been a progression in fly fishing and fly tying where we're really dumbing things down to get to the end result of catching fish or catching more fish. And that's a whole other topic. But I think with streamer fishing, why why it, I'm drawn to it is because it kind of ups the ante with a challenge. And some people are go, oh, all you do is throw it out there and pull it back. <laughs> yeah. That's not really the case. I'm no. like, if that's the case, more people would probably be doing it. I think a lot of people don't gravitate towards streamer fishing that much is because there are days where you go out there and if you don't get that result right away, people are more apt to switch back to maybe tight line and nymphs because it's ultra productive yeah. a lot more, you know? So yeah, I, I, I enjoy the challenge out of it. And the biggest piece of advice with it, if you're somebody that's new to it is don't give up so easily. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, I think people are very apt to throw the towel in real quick just because they're not getting the response that they want right away. I mean, some days you might step in it. The second you throw that first fly on, you start casting and you're wailing on fish. You know, there's going to be a lot more days where you don't, you know, you get, you know, it's, it's not always like that, you know, and I think that's kind of the draw to it is trying to figure out what you can get, you know, what do you have to do to get those fish to eat, you know? So yeah. my biggest thing is aside from, you know, varying your retrieves is, you know, don't, don't hang them up on it so quick. You know, it, the only way you're going to learn is to put the time in on it. And some days you're going to put more in than others. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, just wrapping up that 222. So top two resources, anything out there that maybe isn't your own stuff that you would recommend for somebody that wants to dig into, I guess, you know, into streamers more. I mean, we, I'm just kind of repeating the obvious. I mean, Kelly's got a plethora of stuff. He's doing a lot of videos now. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of guys out there that people probably some lesser known guys, some guys you do know, Mike Schmidt is he's, I mean, he's a multifaceted guy right now. He's doing a lot of different things, but he's, Got a lot of cool stuff out there with streamers. There's a um, two a couple of brothers out of Michigan, um, Matt and Eric Ayuski. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. No. Matt is a – yeah, you might want to interview, if not one, probably both of those yeah. guys at some point. There are two – Matt is – Eric is a, a musky guide on Lake St. Clair. Um, and, you know, him and his brother, they're some of the fishiest guys. I've, I haven't been in, I've been in the boat with Matt, but I've never fished with Eric and Eric is just a musky machine. Um, but Matt is, Matt's a, probably one of the unsung heroes in streamer design. In my opinion, I, I don't think he, like, he gets a lot of, a lot of people probably inadvertently have t borrowed ideas from him, um, that they don't even know. Um, and he's not one of those guys that's really out there pushing his stuff, but he's, He's a super sound tire, does some crazy stuff, big flies, um, you know, for musky stuff for trout. Me and him kind of met through the internet like 15 years ago because we had a couple of, we kind of think similarly um, when it comes to fly design. And we've got a couple of fly patterns that are really close to one another um, that kind of came out around the same time and we didn't even know each other. So it's really bizarre. So um, he, he he's some guy, I mean, I could run a list of dudes. Um I, I don't really get into – there's so many people doing videos and stuff now. The market yeah. for that's kind of flooded. Yep. Um, and, you know, some are good and some are bad. Some – and I'm not here to kind of like – you know, I, I think that's the – Kelly talked about this before where we're kind of in a renaissance with tying mm -hmm. and, 
and electronics and all that stuff. But at the same time, there's the other side of it where it's hard for the new guy to really kind of decipher the good from the bad because it's so flooded out there. And there's this whole different thing going on now where you can kind of fake it to make it, (laughs) if you know what I'm saying. So um, this is a topic I'm not going to really get too much into, but there's a lot of people out there that, you know, it's hard to find the people that have really put the time in from the, those who were basically beg, borrowing and stealing from the guys that have really put the time in and, and done their homework and know what yep. they're doing. Yep. So, um, you know, it's, there's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult. So yeah. th- those ones there, like I said, Kelly's got a plethora of stuff there. Um, when it comes to tips for fishing, I mean, George, George Daniels written some really good books. Mm-hmm. If guys want to read books, his books are good out there. Um, there's a, a bunch of good tying books that are out there. I don't, Charlie Craven just came out with a new yep. streamer book. That's it's really good. Charlie's attention to detail is fantastic. Um, so you know yeah, it's yeah. that's kind of where that's at. Yeah, <clears throat> that's good. Yeah, I'll put links to those. I've interviewed uh, Charlie and and George both, and awesome, really great interviews. Ton, tons of fun. So I'll, I'll put some links to that and. Um, you know, before we head out, I just want to wrap this up with a little rapid fire round here. And uh, just quickly, I had one other question. Glenn in the Facebook group also was asking about, maybe you can briefly touch on, um, you know, catching fish in low water conditions. I'm not sure. It sounds like the the the, the um, Farmington is kind of a tailwater, so it's, it sounds like it's pretty constant. But, you know, if you're out there fishing and, and the water gets pretty low, do you change um, – how, how do you change your streamer fishing? Yeah, so – I, I do. And you know, the, I, um, I spent an entire season, um, just to prove a point fishing, we had drought like conditions, um, on the Farmington where they were basically running a normal flow on that river. And it's maybe a river that's like 40 feet across on average running, excuse me, typically runs at like 350 CFS is a good normal flow where the stream beds covered, etc. They were running, uh, about 75 to 90 CFS hmm. for a prolonged period of time. The water was still relatively cool um, in most parts until you got you know into the summertime and whatnot. But I spent an entire year fishing under low water conditions because you know I can't tell you how many people say, oh, you can't catch fish on big streamers when the water's low or it's clear. Yeah. And that's just complete nonsense. Hmm. So you have to change your whole mentality. I mean, it's, it's kind of like fishing high water. You know, when the water's high, you're, you don't a lot of times you don't need to get into the water. You're fishing mm-hmm. from the bank because the fish are tight to the bank. You have to kind of figure out where they're at. When the water's low, you're going to be walking in exposed stream beds. So you, you need to look for those buckets and pockets where, that are going to hold those fish. I When I, I go out and I fish under lower water conditions and I commit to the streamer thing, I don't bring a sinking line. I'm fishing primarily all weighted to lightly weighted to moderately weighted streamers on a floating line setup. And I definitely make sure that I'm fishing them almost exclusively on an upstream presentation. Because if, if you, even when you're walking on bedrock or loose rock, that's typically underwater, you're sending shock waves through a lot of that stuff. And if you're right next to those fish, you're, you know, they're going to know the gigs up you're there. So I try to fish from a downstream position. I might have to go a little bit that's probably the only time I'll actually contemplate on using like fluorocarbon in a streamer leader. More often than not, I'm just using straight mono and my leader might actually be a little bit longer so that I'm not throwing my fly line over the fish. And that's where those weighted flies like that. I mean, a headbanger is a perfect example. I'll go with a lighter variation of that and those lower conditions. 
And the colors that I pick during those times are, are, are very important too. You want your earth tones, your natural colors. So, you know, I'm not going to go and throw some big crazy purple chartreuse colored fly when the water's like gin clear and super low. You know, you might get the occasional fish on it, but more often than not, they're going to be keying in on that natural stuff. Mm. And the biggest question that comes up, well, what, what colors do you pick? Well, obviously, you know, your earth tones, your olives, your browns, you know, blacks, tans. But if, you, if you're not quite sure what color to check, take a look at the stream bottom mm-hmm. because your bait fish and any of your smaller um, food items are going to take on the color of that stream bed. So, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, I've done river samplings where we've shocked um, sculpins that are, you know, tan in one stretch of river and go 100 feet down river, and the bottom is like a mossy color, and they're like almost jet black. Hmm. So that's the kind of stuff I look for. Cool. Um, cool. Slower approach, you know. That's, that's I mean, awesome. I, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, that's a, those are great tips for sure. Well, uh, yeah, let's uh, take us out of here. We got a couple of just uh, quick questions for you, some random questions sure. here. Um, you mentioned college sports. What was your? Uh, did you have a sport you were uh, you kind of excelled in, in in college? You played. I had a couple. I actually, um, and I never c- continued to go. It's kind of a funny story. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself, so I went the junior college route to kind of figure things out, change my major a thousand times, and then went um got into the law enforcement thing and went to a four-year school uh, while I was in junior college because uh, my high school was a small, you know, regional school in Western Massachusetts, and we had a really limited amount of sports. So it was either soccer, basketball, or baseball at my high school. And I wasn't into soccer, so I played baseball and basketball. Probably would have played football or yeah. hockey, wrestled or any of that. Um, played uh, both basketball and baseball in junior college. I played one year of basketball and it was just too much on the knees, so I stopped. Mm-hmm. And then uh, baseball was kind of my my thing. Um, I actually, my father didn't talk to me for a year when I stopped playing baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so, really? um, yeah, I was like, you know, I think we had, I made all Western Mass for baseball and basketball, but baseball was definitely the sport I excelled at. Um, yeah. well, and, what position? Uh, so it's kind of jack of all trades. I was more of an outfielder because I had a really good arm. Um, so I played like center right. Yep. I pitched too, but my mechanics were terrible. If I had worked on my mechanics, I probably could have been a decent pitcher. Um, and if I'd stuck with it, I probably would have gone on to play at a four-year school. But my thing was I, if I had the passion for baseball that I had with fly fishing, I might have been able to do something with yep. it, not saying it would go pro. Right. But uh, it just wasn't there, and I, did, I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I, I appreciate the sport, but it just – wasn't there. I still watch a lot of sports. I love sports, but it just, I didn't have that fire like I do with the fishing stuff. So cool. Cool. And what about on, um, you know, the headbanger as far as, uh, uh I guess I'm thinking about music. Are you, it, is that kind of where that name come? Or are you kind of like a headbanger type music or what are you into for? for yeah. Tours? I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. So there's some, some backstory to that too. So that, that name kind of came up twofold because I do like some heavy metal music, but also, you know, if, if you don't open your cast up with this fly, you're going to take it off the head. All right. So, yeah. Um, you know, some of the names of some of the flies I have are from some like, uh, you know, eighties and nineties, uh, you know, metal bands and whatnot. Um, like one of the ones I just did the AOD, which is the angel of death. That's like a Slayer song. Uh-huh. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, but I, I listen to a wide uh, variety of music. I mean, classic rock, all that good stuff, but I still like, if I know, when I'm going to go out into my gym and I need to, like me and my friends say, we like to go out there and haze ourselves in the gym. I need some heavy mess, right. heavy music. 
So there's, I think you could say like some of the flies that I've come up with that that's where that kind of comes from is that, you know, yep. the heavy, heavy music type stuff. So that's it. That's it. And what about, uh, and Sam again in, in the Facebook group, uh, mentioned something about a rant. Um, you're, you're pretty good on the rants. Have you had in this conversation today, would you consider everything, anything you had today a rant or do you want to take us out of here with a, a good rant? Yeah, I think I had a little bit of a rant when I got on the, you know, fake it to make it thing. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I feel things are a little different. I, and a couple of the guys that I talk to, uh, I have a big circle of friends with people in the industry, both older, much older than me, some in my age group. And a lot of times we kind of just kind of scratch our heads and I don't get on these rants to be malicious. I know a lot of people are thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, every day I kind of scratch my head at where things are going nowadays. Um, you yeah. know, I, and one of my biggest thing is I've always tried I know I'm not perfect. You know, I've got a lot of faults, but I always try to sit back and look at things and from a guide perspective or somebody in the industry and, you know, what, what's the right thing to do? You mm -hmm. know, um, I think as guides and I think this is getting lost with, and I hate to paint people with a wide brush, yeah. but I think this is really getting lost with a lot of our younger and I hate to say the millennial crowd, but, yep. um, you know, they've lost sight of the whole idea of being a, what, what being a guide entails. And, you know, as, as a guide, you, you know, you're a steward of the fishery that you run your yep. business on. So I, I, I see there's always this, there's a percentage of guys that are really good about it, but there's also, I feel like there's more people now in that younger bracket that there it's, all about the likes. It's all about getting those fish out there and putting those fish pictures up and the yeah. gripping grins. And, you know, they're, they're not doing it for the right reasons. And a lot of them, they, they like the idea and I'm probably going to get some hate for saying this, but I think it needs to be said. And I know a lot of people are thinking it. They like the idea of what fly fishing is and the whole concepts on it and being conserva conservative and, yeah. you know, preserving our fisheries, but they're not doing anything. They're not doing it. anything in that realm, you know, and it's right. like anything I can speak on experience from it. Most fishing clubs, 90% of the work gets done by five to 10% of the people that are involved in it. Yep. And it's like that in a lot of things. Now, everybody wants to be cool because yeah, this is the cool thing to do now, but nobody wants to put the work in anymore. And I think that goes across the board yeah. and it's kind of disheartening because, you know, the, the younger people and I'm still kind of young, I'm 45, mm -hmm. but you know, there's a whole younger generation of us that if that gets lost, you know, in translation, it's not good for our sport. No, no, no. You know, yeah. and I hope a lot of people hear that and they take it to heart because you know what? Like when guys my age, I mean, a lot of the people that I look up, up to in the fly fishing world are passing away now. Mm -hmm. you know, one, of, one of which, God rest his soul, is a great guy, Dave Brand. He just passed away mm -hmm. the other day. You know, so I mean, and, and I hate to say this sounds awful, but a lot of the older older guard of and fly fishing in the industry are there there's you know they're dropping like flies right now yeah you know so you know where, where does that leave us you know it's like you know it's I, i'm all about people getting into this sport both facets of fly fishing and fly tying yep um i think it's great um but but also too like you know you want to show them the right way of doing things just yeah. because you can do something doesn't mean it's right totally totally no it's an it, interesting yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, I think that for me, I always feel like, you know, getting more people into fly fishing is, even though it puts more pressure and stuff, it seems like it's a good thing because eventually, 
even if those people don't know about it, it seems like as they get more into it, that conservation just comes along with it, right? Because people realize, oh yeah, of course, I want to conserve what I love, you know? And so it's interesting to have this conversation because, I mean, do you think more of these people are people that are just starting out and and just kind of going off? Or do you think these are people that have been doing it a little while and, and just don't care? Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot of different dynamics that are going on. So, I mean, you know, this could be a whole other topic, but you've got, it's like one of the topics that comes up with me and a lot of my friends that I talk to on a regular basis is, and it doesn't just go into fly fishing. I think it kind of goes with society overall is the acceptance of mediocrity. So like, I think that's really coming into our sport a bit. Um, There's a lot of people that want to get into guiding and I, you know, as a guide, you know, I think you kind of, it's like putting the cart before the horse. So you get somebody gets into fishing and now all of a sudden they want to be a guide, but what are they really bringing to the table for their customers? So me personally, like I wouldn't feel comfortable if I was thrown into the mix by that, if I didn't have a good handle on, Hey, you know, not just getting myself into fish, but kind of figuring out a lot of these situations that are out there. So, um, you know, I think yeah. that's part of it. I think, um, like I said, you know, there's a whole demographic of, and, and, and this goes to whole other thing but I, like the whole dumbing down of certain things like we we're, we've got and I, and I know people like to look at things of the progression and being progressive that's a term I think that gets overused but like you know we'll take uh and I and then this is going to be a big rant that I know a lot of guys probably aren't going to like but so like fishing with a mono rig on a fly rod hmm. are we still fly fishing right it's highly effective yeah. highly effective I've done it so but at the same time are, are we still fly yeah, fishing? Fly? I, I like the, <laughs> I like the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, when you talk about that fly fishing being that you have to cat, right. Casting is part of, if you're not casting, then I, I think you're stretching it. Right. And I guess with, yeah, mod- I don't know. With, yeah. You no, know, because there's a demographic of anglers and I see it on my home waters where they, you, and I, I've had them in the front of my boat and you know, you, you put them, you put a rod in their hand and say, all right, dude, cast that streamer to the bank. And they can't even throw 15 feet of fly line. Yeah. But you give them a, you give them a mono rig and a couple of weighted nymphs, and they can. I, I, we have a funny term that me and my friends call it. So it's I, listen. I like to tight line nymph too. It works. It's highly effective. If you got a little bit of time and you want to catch some fish, yeah. that's the best way to catch fish, hands down. Yeah. But we call it. We like to call it pendulum nymphing because you look like you're pendulum fishing because you're just cast lobbing a couple of weighted flies up the river and then yep. stomping through doing that all the way through. That's so it. I think that's a facet of fishing. And fly fishing, you can argue if it's fly fishing or not. I mean, I'd be a hypocrite if I told you I had not done that before. I have. But I sit here now, maybe I'm becoming an old curmudgeon, but I'm looking at things a little differently. And it's funny because some of the things that I remember hearing when I was younger from some of the older guys, now I'm looking at like, wow, I'm like, I'm looking at things a little differently. So either I'm becoming a little wiser or maybe I'm questioning things a little more. So if that's all you can do, and there's so many other things you can do with a fly rod, which is the greatest thing about fly fishing especially for trout it gives you such a broad spectrum of ways you can catch trout if you can't cast a fly line yeah what, what's i mean like that's the basis that's and it. basics of fly fishing when you get into it is learning how to cast and a lot of people that's all they like to do yeah when they first get in, it was just the there's they get pure enjoyment out of casting that fly line yeah. but if you can't even do that then i don't i don't know i sit here and like i said it makes me kind of scratch my head a little bit and i'm like if and there's and then I I'm not the I'm not gonna same thing I'm not gonna paint people with a wide brush but there's a lot of guides now I see in my neck of the woods that's all they're teaching people they're, newbies coming out they've never fly fished before 
and they're just putting a you know a, a ten or eleven foot rod in their hand with no fly line and <laughs> having them lob weighted nips, and I'm just like, did you even show them how to cast? <laughs> that's you know, so like I I don't I don't know. I think that's like that's where I say we're like we're dumbing things down and we're we're losing. Yeah. We're losing it's it's losing its face like the face of the sport is kind of losing it a little bit. And I know there's I know I'm friendly with uh, a lot of the cop anglers and and some of the cop anglers feel not some a lot of them yeah. if not most feel the same way because you know they they see people infil- trying to infiltrate into the whole competition fly fishing side of things and that's all they can do is Thailand nymph. but what are you going to do when that doesn't work? Yeah, there's there's <laughs> you know, 20, I mean, 20% of the time where those guys are actually using dry flies or wet flies, right? Right, but you still got to be able to do it. You got to be able so, to do it. That's awesome. You know, it's, I mean, it's I and, I and like I said, I try to be I I'm not I hate that word PC and politically correct yeah. cuz I think it's ridiculous. I I I'm more of a, you know, call a spade a spade kind of guy and I, I think now that I'm a little bit older, I'm more to kind of call that kind of stuff out, but like think about this for a second guys like we, what, what are we doing like let's let's not lose you know the the basis of the whole sport yeah I, and i kind of think that's where things are going there's a, a ton of great stuff too like i said i think we definitely need more people in the sport because you know there's another term that i think is a little vastly overused the fly fishing community i think it's used in the wrong way <laughs> you know I, I don't know about you but when i got into fly fishing the beauty of it was to kind of get away from everything and not be surrounded by all kinds of other stuff and and i see it on a river right here that gets 300 something thousand hours of a year of fishermen in an eight mile Mm. stretch damn like how do you get solitude there so like i i i didn't get into fly fishing for the community the community of it is hey we're off the river now i'm going to meet you at the the pub or something we're gonna have a beer and we're going to talk about our day or we're going to talk about a you know maybe a topic in a club now that's a hot button topic that potentially could be devastating to our fishery. That's the the community side of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't look at it. I don't look at being on the water as a communal thing. I mean, the communal part of it might be me and two guys in my boat with me, but not when I'm out there waiting. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I think I don't know. I got a different outlook on things, that's, but maybe I'm you. maybe I'm a curmudgeon now. <laughs> no, that's that's good. That's a perfect uh, as as Sam was looking for. I think that was a great rant to take us out of out of here on. Um, you know, we dug into uh, this has been a lot of fun, kind of digging into. I think mostly streamers, and you know, it's always the struggle is trying to get a you know dig into everything, which we ob- obviously didn't. But I think uh, at least we got a few rants in, so I'm happy about that. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Anytime, I appreciate you having me. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 138. Uh, a little reminder on the new podcast, if you get a chance, would love uh, love it if you could uh, head over to outdoorsonline.co and have a quick listen. Uh, we've got some good stuff going on there and would, would, love, uh, would love it if you could take a look. Uh, thanks again today uh, for stopping by. I'm definitely looking forward to catching up this soon. I hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.